You're listening to the Arctic Circle podcast. In this episode, we listen to five leaders of youth in the Arctic discuss the future of the Arctic. The panel consists of Eben Hopson, North Slope Liaison, Ukpiakvik Inupiat Corporation, Daria Magthonia, chairperson of the Barents Regional Youth Council, Annie Simila, project worker from the Sami Council, Peter Haltosson, founder of the Arctic Youth Network, and Victoria Kutuk Bushman, postdoctoral researchers, International Arctic Research Center at the University of Alaska Fairbanks and Greenland Institute of Natural Resources. The panel discussion is followed by a Q&A from the audience. The dialogue was moderated by Jack Durkee, program associate from the Wilson Center's Polar Institute. This event originally took place at the 2021 Arctic Circle Assembly in Reykjavik, Iceland, and was organized in collaboration with the Polar Institute, Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Jack Durkee, and I'm serving as moderator for today's uh, today's discussion entitled The Arctic in 25 Years, Youth Perspectives. I'm a program associate with the Wilson Center's Polar Institute in Washington, D.C., where I lead several strategic initiatives, including the Arctic Infrastructure Inventory, a public database tracking infrastructure assets in the Arctic. I'm standing in for Michaela Stith, uh, who is the founder and director of the Arctic and 25-Year Symposium. She also works at the Wilson Center's Polar Institute and has been instrumental in conceptualizing the symposium and bringing it from vision to reality. This initiative was initially supported by Arctic Frontiers, Arctic Council Permanent Participant Youth, supported by the Arctic Council Indigenous People Secretariat, and the Arctic Youth Ambassadors. Arctic Frontiers and Arctic Youth Ambassadors Program are pleased to support today's panel. In 25 years, scientists predict the Arctic may see its first ice-free summers and that major fish stocks, including economically important cod and salmon stocks, may collapse. With the global pandemic at hand, geopolitical tensions rising globally, and climate change already affecting our landscapes at home, youth face a very uncertain future. 25 years ago, faced with environmental pollution and increasingly open Arctic, leaders around the world created the Arctic Council to bolster the research and diplomacy around sustainable development and environmental protection in the region. Many of the youth on this panel have participated in that forum and other international organizations as young emerging leaders. But the emerging leaders before you are not only the leaders of the future, they're the leaders of today. I am inspired, as we all are inspired, by the conviction of young people across the Arctic that their home in the next 25 years can look more equitable, more thriving than it is today, and that the knowledge to bring about that change is rooted in their ancestors' traditions and their own sense of place. At the inaugural symposium held earlier this year, some common themes included, one, the necessity of free, prior, and informed consent of indigenous peoples when considering development in the Arctic region, two, intentional relationship building and bottom-up policy approaches to produce successful solutions to Arctic challenges, and three, leveraging power from institutions to communities so that research, policy, and decision-making are created by and for peoples who have been marginalized. In the essence of time, I will forego fully introducing the speakers now and will allow each speaker to introduce themselves when they first speak. On the panel, we've got 
Pietro Haldorsen, it's different in my notes. <laughs> Daria Makotina, um, Dr. Victoria Kutuk Bushman, Evan Hobson, and Annie Simila. I will pose one question to the panel now and tie in themes that we discussed at a breakout session yesterday. After that, we'll welcome questions from the audience. So, from your experience working with the Arctic youth, how should policy evolve over the next 25 years to foster the most thriving future for the Arctic region? Henny, you first. Yes, thank you, Sheikh. Um, and uh, first of all, thank you for inviting me to this panel. And um, I'm glad to see that there is uh, actually a youth panel in the plenary session, so I really appreciate that. Uh, so I am Enne Simila. I am the permanent participant youth representative of the SAMI Council, and I'm also the chair of the Finnish SAMI Youth Asso Association. Um, I also appreciated to quote it uh, that we are not only future leaders, but we are leaders already now. And I have heard that several times during this uh, during this uh, two days. So that is really nice that it's noted. Um, so we can see in many forums that the youth have started to be more interested in participating in the policy making. Uh, and I would say that the main reason for this is actually the climate change. Uh, our generation will be the one living with the consequences of the, of the climate change um, and the decisions the leaders are making today. Uh, there needs to be increased interest involving youth to policy making at an early stage. If youth are engaged already at an early level, they will be more likely to be engaged at the later level as well. This is how we can foster strong future leaders who have built collaborations already from young age. But um, now me speaking with my Sami heart and indigenous heart, um, for me, a tribe in Arctic actually means our culture being lively, youth continuing with traditional livelihoods, um, us being able to guard our lands, and we actually still having our traditional lands, and indigenous peoples being respected and treated equally. Uh, we, the indigenous people, have lived in the Arctic since time immemorial, and we should be part of the decision-making when it comes to our lands and lives. Uh, for example, now in Finland, there is ongoing reform uh, to the Sami Parliament Act, and it will move to Finnish Parliament this autumn. This re reform aims to fix the current state of, of the law, which is not in accordance with the UN Human Rights Committee standards. I hope that the Act will be adopted, and in this matter, the voice of the Sami people will be heard, and we will, we will actually be able to affect our future. But to conclude my answer now, um, if youth can be involved in the policy making already now, they will be able to affect today's future. I believe that this will strengthen their feeling for a be better future and give hope to the youth. And if the youth have hope for the future, we will have resilient communities in years to come. Thank you, Annie. Uh, Pietro and Daria, yesterday you both discussed how policymakers and other stakeholders should, of their own accord, approach and engage with youth. Pietro, can you share your thoughts about this with regard to the Icelandic Youth Environmentalist Association's Handbook for Environmental Advocacy? 
Yes, thank you. And also, I just want to say it's uh, great to be here with you. And yeah, like I mentioned yesterday, the Icelandic Youth Environmentalist Association, or Unkir Unkirisinar, uh, last year published a handbook about environmental advocacy. And of course, the background of that, of that is that we have these big global challenges in the Arctic and beyond, uh, which uh, young people want and can uh, participate in solving. Um, and in short, it kind of highlights um, examples of method methodology for young people to do precisely this. And what I think is maybe the important thing uh, for the next 25 years uh, is that both on behalf of governments and businesses and non-governmental organizations is to proactively, like you say, work with youth uh, on how to, in a practical manner, um, implement the perspectives and even giving youth, youth power to participate in the policy-making processes. Um, because if we don't, then we won't, we, we will have a limited picture of what we're dealing with. And as experience shows for the last decades and um, centuries, uh, that leads us to a very uh, dire um, situation. So I think in the next 25 years, we could really together work on um, implementing this in a practical sense. Cool. Thank you, Pietro. Daria? In the same sense, can you share your thoughts about this from your perspective as chair of the Barents Regional Youth Council? Yes, thank you for your question. Um, to follow up on what Peter said, it is very important to create the infrastructure where all the stakeholders and governmental representatives are actively collaborating with youth. Because, for example, in the Barents Regional Youth Council, our main goal is to create the democratic platform for the young voices from the whole Arctic region who live in the remote areas and who don't have access to these communication channels for the higher officials. They can express it to us and then inform the youth recommendations, which is the official document that is published every year on the Barents uh, Euro-Arctic Cooperation website as well that... Um, is widely accessible, we deliver these messages. And we also need to understand that youth has the capacity and they have the knowledge and skills and competences that we need to pay attention to. Because when we consider the Arctic in 25 years, one of the most important questions is, is there going to be any youth left here? And if we are going to work with young people, if we are going to recognize the informal and formal youth participation, if we are going to create the stable financing system, and if we are going to provide youth with all the opportunities that we can without even thinking if we should reach out to them, that would be the key to success. And just adding on that, um, in Iceland we recently had a parliamentary election and one project that was run by the Icelandic Youth Environmentalist Association uh, was making a kind of a test or criteria for the policies of the, all the political parties about how they, in a practical sense, look at environmental issues, whether it's climate or conservation or circular economy. And in a very transparent manner, uh, this youth organization was to 
was able to show in detail the difference between the policies of the different parties regarding environmental issues. And it was really great to see how much visibility it, uh, it got. And it was actually affecting and helping the political parties develop their policies. So I think this is an excellent example. And by the way, I think tomorrow there's going to be a specific uh, session about this uh, project, and it's called The Sun, and you can look at the look for it. Uh, anyway, I think it's a great example of how um, young people can proactively participate in this process, but this also required participation on behalf of the um, soon-to-be uh, or currently current um, politicians, uh, because they were submitting their um, policies into the project. Anyway, so I think it's uh, very good to have these kind of practical, concrete examples of how young people can genuinely participate in the political processes other than just, you know, of course we want to also show up and, and smile and all that, um, but we have to have both. Thank you both. <coughs> Uh, Eben, yesterday you discussed how climate change is affecting food security, but more importantly, how that affects the mental health of the communities and the individuals in the Arctic. Could you speak a bit more about that today? Thank you, Jack. Um, so my name is Eben Hobson. I'm from a small northern uh, community in northern Alaska called Utkelevik, Alaska. Um, my people heavily rely on our bowhead whales that we hunt two times a year, given the chance that we are able to catch the bowhead whales and with the changing climate um, in the summertime, we have heavy rainfall and warmer temperatures that end up affecting the, the sigloks or the ice cellars, and that's where we keep our bowhead whale meat, and that's where we keep our, uh, our game for the year. And if those are affected, or if, if those are being destroyed by the heavy rainfall and the warmer temperatures, then, then we have no food for the for the rest of the year. And having that stress on hunters and fishermen and um, people who, who rely on the food year-round for, um, or, or, or to, to survive on the food year-round, um, that brings even more stress on gathering food. And um, with, uh, with all that stress um, coming from all all of the food that that's destroyed um, comes suicide and a lot of mental health issues. And with that, um, it destroys our culture. It destroys our accessibility to teach the younger indigenous people um, our way of life, our culture. And with that, it destroys our people. And um, being isolated in that or in, in small communities for the majority of the year. Um, in the wintertime, we have 24-hour darkness. And being isolated and living in 24-hour darkness and having the stress of um, not having any food after the warmer temperatures um, destroy the ice cellars. Um, most of the youth go to uh, alcoholism and drug abuse to kind of numb that pain for, for all, of the, or, uh, all of the losses that, that we've encountered. And um, it's just way too many things to talk about on this stage right now. Um, but if you would like to talk to me about it, 
after this panel, then I'd be glad to. Um, there's just a lot to talk about. And um, what are uh, some, shoot, I don't, uh, okay. Um, all right, so if one thing is affected, then it just doesn't affect that one thing. It, it affects everything around it. And having our food being affected affects the health and well-being of everybody in, in the community. Thank you, Evan, for sharing your uh, experiences with us here. Uh, Vic <laughs> Victoria, yesterday you discussed how Arctic youth often must leave the Arctic, leave the North to get an advanced education. Is that something policy can fix? Thank you for the question. Um, Eben and I are actually from the same hometown, and so um, a lot of the issues that he is presenting today um, are really affecting a lot of communities across the Arctic. And we have a lot of issues that we need to address, um, environmental issues, um, issues of cultural sovereignty, language sovereignty, these kinds of things. And often right now, if you want to discuss policy at the international level, you need an advanced degree to be a part of that discussion. Or if you do not have an advanced degree, people are not as likely to take you so seriously. So there are two issues here that I would like to highlight. The first is that I'm a doctor of conservation biology, and it was very difficult for me to come uh, to this stage in my career. And I believe that all indigenous youth, all youth in the Arctic, deserve the same opportunities and access to education as everyone else does in all of our very wealthy countries. And this is not always the case. Uh, for example, in Greenland, you cannot even study the sciences. You have to leave the country to, to get an education in science. And this is, a, this is a hardship because we have a lot of environmental issues, a lot of conservation, a lot of management that needs to be done. And young people are not able to access those educational opportunities the same. So I would encourage that at the policy level that we begin to start investing in the future of the folks who are going to be managing these landscapes, making decisions for the environment today and in 25 years, that people have the same opportunity to go and receive that education if they so desire. But at the same time, I think it's also really important that we move past this need to have an education to sit in these international forum and recognize that a lot of youth are also knowledge holders. They are also very um, involved in hunting and fishing and already provide a lot of information that needs to be recognized as a valid form of knowing, a valid uh, contribution to a lot of the policymaking decisions that are happening. And so I would also encourage that as we move forward now and in 25 years, that this is no longer a barrier. Educational opportunity is not a barrier for indigenous peoples to be a part of these international discussions. Thank you. Thanks, Victoria. The clock is winding down, but I do want to offer the audience a chance to ask some questions. Yes, there is one in the back. Awesome, a fellow youth. <laughs> yes, um, 
I would like to ask the question, my name is Martin, I'm 23 years old, I'm also part of the Barnes Regional Youth Council. Hello, Dario. Uh, I would like to ask the question, why do you think that many of the world leaders surrounding the work in, in the Arctic, uh, why do you think they are hesitant to give young people a stronger platform to inform them about the struggles we face every day and also to provide them with the solutions on how to fix those struggles, to fight depopulation, to better young people's health. Why do you think they are resisting this movement of, of young people? Why is that the case and how can we work towards fixing that to be more included in the decision-making process and make better institutions on how to include youth in, in the decision-making process. Thank you very much. Yeah, I think I will try. Um, I'm not really sure what you mean by hesitant. I think that the decision-makers don't have enough instruments to cooperate with youth. And from the other side, uh, youth also doesn't have enough information, doesn't have enough agencies and uh, channels that they can address the issues. And I think that this is the chain that is being broken in the middle. Because if we can educate the both sides from the perspective of sitting on the fence and looking from the one into another and combine the, uh, the problems that we face from the both sides, then we can finally reach the dialogue. And uh, in order to put the young people together with the seats, uh, in the seats with the bigger decision makers, I think we need to at least start getting rid of the youth panels and recognize the young scientists together with the scientists of age, recognize the young political leaders with the older political leaders of age, and it comes to the all kind of youth participation that we are going to perceive each other as equals without the necessity of being treated as marginalized group. I think if we start with that, then we can try and we can work together and we can reach this understanding. And just adding to that, I think lack of expertise or experience is often the case because working with young people uh, or any group for that matter takes um, specific kinds of expertise on how to genuinely you know, ask about and learn their expectations and priorities. And oftentimes, in my experience, this has been, well, even completely lacking. So um, helping governments or businesses or organizations build that capacity, which of course requires a dialogue and help from youth, uh, would be a way to address that because I don't think anyone generally doesn't want input from youth. They, may, they more <laughs> frequently maybe don't really understand how or, or why it works. Cool. Thank you. So we are out of time. I want to thank all the speakers up here today, all these leaders, um, for sharing their experience and perspectives. I also want to thank Arctic Circle and President Grimson for allowing us this important platform. And uh, I do want to propose that in 25 years, we get the same panel up here <laughs> and revisit what we discussed today. So I'll leave that with you. But thank you, everyone, for attending. And uh, have a good day.